Hello, my friend. Before we start this amazing episode, I want to invite you to the personal Patreon page of this podcast. If you love what's being done here and want to keep the podcast and the meditations free to the public, then you can come on over to our brand new community on Patreon and donate $11.11 a month and all proceeds will go towards keeping this free, keeping this going. Plus, we'll be building a community together and I'll give you bonus material. You can explore this option in the description of this podcast or just go to patreon.com slash Dr. Reese. Let's begin. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. So what's it like after you take your last breath? Welcome to episode number 111. Today, I'm talking to Jake Cooper. He's a social worker, a past life regression therapist, a Reiki practitioner, and the author of Life After Breath. Before becoming a social worker and practitioner, he had a near-death experience when he was only three years old. What happened and how did it affect him for life moving forward? So sit down, relax, and take in this beautiful, invaluable recording. Let's begin. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, do you like to be called Dr. Kevin, Dr. Reese, or just Kevin? Kevin's fine, yeah. Yeah, an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You had a near-death experience when you were a child, and this forever changed your life. What happened? In September of 1993, at the time, I, I didn't know it, but I had um, a highly contagious upper respiratory virus known as pertussis, otherwise known as whooping cough. Um, and that caused me to to suffocate due to whooping cough. You know, at the time I had a cough, but obviously my parents didn't think it was that big of a deal, you know, enough for me to, to not be sent to the hospital, the doctor, but just kind of hit me, you know, all at once with this period of suffocation, you know, due to whooping cough. And I was in a playground, you know, with family friends and I literally suffocated and due to pertussis. And as an infant or child, you know, untreated, unvaccinated, um, you know, whooping cough could be fatal, um, you know, definitely in infants and children. And, and you know, I suffocated at a playground and from losing my breath uh, and losing everything and being the moments of the most suffering and trauma that I could ever imagine, I was able to see the and experience the total opposite of it within that completely empty, almost, almost endless void of, of pain and suffering from suffocation that I had. And so I really remembered who I was and where I was connected to. And I saw myself so much more than just this three-year-old child in this temporary body and temporary family. I was, I was reminded of so much more inside of me that was, that never left my side, but I, you know, even at three years old, might've lost sight of, of all that was around me and all that I was connected to. Wow. 
How long were you out? How long were you dead? You know, I was rushed to the hospital uh, because I was irresponsive. And I was aware, you know, my body was on the ground, you know, flatlined and people were calling me and I wasn't responding. And so they had an ambulance and they rushed me. And so I was, I was out for a period of time. Uh, there was no response. There was no anything. But the difficult part was I was very much aware that they were looking at my body, asking me to respond. And I was trying to communicate with them outside of my body. And so um. it was being frustrated that I could see them. They couldn't see me. And that I just wanted to tell them that I was more than fine. Um, but, you know, I was, I was aware of a form within my experience. I was, had my physical form, obviously, but from being outside of it, I was able to feel and sense my forms as well as the forms beyond the physical body, the participants that was around me. And this was their auric field. And I was aware of not only my spiritual guides, but I was aware of angels around me and their spiritual guides. And there was just so much more transparency of myself, the nature of reality and people around me that I wasn't privy to within my conscious mind. And it was just amazing, you know, what could happen when you lose a sense of breath and you open yourself up to the breath of eternity. And uh, it was it was quite an expansive euphoric experience. Um, you know, wow. it, was, it was remarkable. Yeah. I see why you named your book Life After Breath. You know, double, yeah. double, double, double meaning right there. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, from what I learned, it's not, it's not death itself that really scares people. I think we've seen death, you know, many times if we incarnate throughout lifetimes, I think it's more the constructs and the word itself of death that scares people. You know, death means there's nothing. And for us, that is such a diametrically different position, especially now when we're so used to running around and just to have a complete vacancy of just nothingness. I could certainly see where that scares people. And so for myself, uh, the nothingness that I experienced was this place of in between when I was suffocated and my body wasn't working and I wasn't yet crossed over. So I was just in this, what felt like this eternal period of pain. But once that was passed, you know, I was in this, this eternal awareness of consciousness and expanded awareness far beyond anything that I, you know, could have experienced, you know, in this body. I wasn't limited by it. And, um, but the book Life After Breath really speaks to the breath that we're connected to and the breath that we're created from and how even when we lose the physical breath, there's a breath that we are, that we are bestowed from the genesis of our creation, you know, and that can never be taken. Mm. And you were only three years old when this happened. Yeah, you know, wow. it's it's one of the more, um, uh, you know, I could say it called controversial thought provocative elements of my near-death experience. Because, you know, if you listen, if you look at, you know, and it's hard to say conventional, but if you look at most of the media NDEs that happen to people, you know, middle-aged, they're working regular jobs, and all of a sudden they just can't come back to that lifestyle again. They're so changed, they're so transformed. Uh, for myself, uh, you know, at such a young age, this, you know, certainly, you know, changed my life in so many ways, but I was really wasn't able to process and integrate and make sense of it until my later teens, early 20s, uh, you know, because I really buried this experience, was very close to my heart, not something that I verbalized and 
adults as it is ha have a very difficult time verbalizing their experience to put finite experience and in, uh, infinite experience in finite words is a challenge for most. So yeah. particularly an infant or child that was hard. Yeah. How do you move on from there? Like, you know, I, I read that you've, you've gone through like a roller coaster ride of turmoil and loss, discovery and all this stuff. Like what happens to your childhood? Yeah. Well, it's almost a little bit like Benjamin Bunnins and Brad Pitt, where, mm. you know, I think we come to this world very wise and very clear, and then we get disempowered and we lose that. And we just kind of almost, a lot of us devolve to just fit the material world. And it's almost like we have to shut that, that awareness to play the game in a way. But I think at times in moments of crisis and moments when the game no longer is, is feeding a deep part of ourselves is when we try to reevaluate, you know, life. And so with myself, I, I, in order to, to survive, I needed to bury this behind in order to be in this world and almost kind of play the game, either know I had transparency behind it that, you know, the adults that I saw of adults were no different, no better than me. They were just physically older, but they were no wiser. And, but I think in order to, to, to survive, I just almost had to tune down that. But to thrive, I had to acknowledge this experience. I had to be empowered in it. I had to take ownership of it. I couldn't no longer put the beach ball under the water. It eventually just found me, even when I just tried to run and bury it for many years to survive here. But I, but I think the, the more difficult element was the unsuppressed trauma, which manifested itself in a lot of rage and anger that I had mm. towards the world, you know, because it just, it felt like a world that just had this monopolization of truth. And, and I just saw so clearly past this illusion that people are chasing all these things that in the end to be meant nothing. And I think really, I could attest and most near-death experiencers will attest, it's not about the chasing, but rather the embodying of the love that you are and leaving things behind, you know, leaving currents behind in this lifetime. But, you know, just the trivial pursuits of the world, you know, really got to me with how much stock people took in it and how I was just almost forced to buy into this myth that people so, believed in. Yeah. So if you saw someone perhaps chasing a career or trying to make money or getting a new car, that really didn't sit right with you because you experienced something else. Well, just the amount of energy that people put to just keep up with the mechanism, you know, and just play the game. And you know, I understood, obviously, do you have the human part later in life? You know, that's why we came here. You know, if it was all about the spiritual part, we wouldn't be here. So I think part of it is learning balance to balance the human as well as the spiritual part of us. And, you know, those are two very important parts to honor. So, you know, you can't ignore, yes, we have to, you know, yes, we have to pay the bills. Yes, we have to do all these things. But to also see life from a broader perspective and to, to not get caught in the micro, you know, things that just, you know, have no value at the end of the day when it's all said and done. But yeah, you know, you can't ignore that kind of stuff because we do need to feed the body, honor it, all that stuff. But I think it's, at least for myself, and I can't speak for other people, it's, it's finding ways where I'm able to balance that so I'm not overly balanced in one way or the other. It's finding a happy medium between the two. Um, because I do think in many ways we did, you know, come here to enjoy the physical and make the most of the physical, but also to 
not make the mundane the mundane, but rather to make the mundane sacred and just to really, mm. you know, tr you know, change this reality in a way. Did the spirit guides speak to you? You know, I, I had a deepened relationship with the spirit guides and I guess the greatest, you know, emotion that I had was, uh, was embarrassment at, at the end of the day. I, it wasn't them. It was me that I just felt so embarrassed that I forgot about them as well as just, it wasn't a judgmental, but it was almost the remembering that each moment of our life was on record and we weren't doing this alone, that they were beings with us through every step of this journey, aware to every thought or every deed or every action. And so it, I think the embarrassing part was noticing just how much, you know, transparency of this experience was and how sometimes we forget where we're just on the, our own autonomous island and we think that we could just put a... Um, a sheet over the camera, but the camera's always rolling and we're mm. always being seen and watched. And, you know, that's a little bit vulnerable. And so that's kind of what I felt, but, uh, you know, I, and that was nothing from them. From them, it was just unconditional and supportive love. And, you know, for me, the spirit guides, I would say it was just a close extension, closest extension of myself and beings who knew me probably than I knew myself. And, uh, you know, I was able to see them to the right side and left side of me at the moment, I had clear-cut names, pictures, you know, their images. It was very real unfolding right, you know, with me. And it was, it was a very almost tangible reality, almost realer than this. But the colors, the sizes of them, their beauty was just nothing like what we see here. There was, it was just pure flawlessness. You know, it was, it was just divine perfection. You know, something so much more different than what we are, are used to. This life that we're living is very layered, isn't it? Well, what I would say is it's kind of like almost like a fan. I think everything vibrates, but I think on the other side, it vibrates so fast that we can't really see it with the physical eye, but it's still you know, kind of like occurring. You know, it's kind of like Wi-Fi. It doesn't have a specific location, but it's still on a different frequency. And I think this is more dense. So we're able to see the individual, f you know, f uh, f um, you know, uh, parts of the fan and stuff like that. But, um, you know, this life is definitely a denser, lower vibratory, you know, energy. And that's really what I felt, where it's just this big ascension past this reality with the awareness of the infinite uh, vibrations of this reality, that there's no limitations to how high, how good, how, how you could soar. In this lifetime, we're used to being bio, you know, bio neurochemical beings, and there's almost like a cap for our, our, the climax of our experience. And on the other side, there's no cap. There's no limitation of euphoria. Hmm. And what time, what period in your life did you eventually confront this head on and perhaps start a spiritual practice? Yeah, you know, it was, I think with any spiritual practice, it's hard to like point at one particular thing. I think we all are spiritual without labeling it in a sense that anytime that we get into that mind of quiet or we be the sacred observer, that to me is getting intimate with ourselves and the deeper waters of, of ourselves and getting into the creative minds, you know? And so I, I don't try to have a set set of circumstances of spirituality because person to person it's different, but to me, it's, it's getting into the deep intimacy of life itself and, and really having it speak to you on a deep level and listening to it at a deep level and embracing and celebrating 
you know, life itself. Uh, but, but for myself, you know, I think the major turning point uh, was receiving a book by an author by the name of Betty Eighty called Embraced by the Light, which was a New York Times bestseller. And that was a book on her near-death experience. And that gave me a universality behind my experience and a label, you know, behind it. You know, because otherwise it was just this cool experience that I buried for so many years and I was always aware of, but I never verbalized or told anyone uh, for many reasons, uh, you know, but I really just kept this close to heart. So hearing that someone else had this in a way agitated me because I thought I was just so special to have this experience, <laughs> you know, that I, you know, you just felt like, you know, you were in this reality and you had this thing that no one else had that no one else could remember. So that at least for me felt special, but hearing someone else had this was also cathartic as well. And it allowed me to feel, you know, support. And it gave me most importantly, uh, the momentum to go forward with this publicly. And that was a big release. And knowing that this was experience was not something to just be held onto, but rather something to give over to other people. It wasn't about me. This experience is never about us. It's about the collective. Mm. You know? Yeah, it's it's hard to grasp sometimes because we're we're so attached to this life, man. We're so attached to our bodies, our health, our personal health, and our jobs and our career and our family. And then you have this experience. And it's just mm. your experience well, is about unattachment. You know, I think it's important to separate attachment with being present. I think it's very important to be present, you know, here in this body, to here in this life and to maximize it. Because, you know, I think the state of heaven is always there, but having the mindset of the state of heaven is in this moment. And so to me, that means embracing whatever it is you're dealing with and being and being with it and obviously being able to be connected to other realities at hand. But I think in, in our reality, we're so used to the next day, the next moment, the next play. On the other side, it's different. It's just this eternal moment of timelessness. And I think this earth is very much a, a training ground to be able to do that. And if we could do that here, we could really embrace our eternity and bring heaven down to earth by being very much in tune to this moment and bring that sacred energy into this finite moment in time, you know, and just being present with, with the process. Now you end up getting into past life regressions and therapy. You help people with that. Did you have an experience with that as well? And that's what made you want to get into it? Yeah. Within my near death experience, I had previous, you know, life awareness and I was able to, um, you know, overcome the, the the limitations of time and I was able to have, you know, a nonlinear understanding of time. And so that allowed me to, to have future premonitions that came to true within my own personal life, as well as in a macro level, uh, but also on a micro level awareness of other carnations that I lived. And I think so much of the work that I do is to give back what I was seen as well as, uh, as, as being shared with, you know, I think, at least to me, the biggest illusion that one could live in this lifetime is to live a life that doesn't feel guided, a life that doesn't feel that there's an intelligence guiding you far beyond this body and this mundane existence. And sometimes we could lose sight that this thing is really a spiritual thing. It's not just a mundane 
you know, thing that we punch in, punch out of, and just a miraculous biochemical existence that we're dropped here out of. It's there's an intelligence behind it. There's a purpose behind it. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And so I think for myself, the concept was there, you know, is there in a lot of people, but I experienced this firsthand in my near death experience with just this infinite intelligence behind this orchestration that sometimes we forget. So past life regression was an area that I really was passionate about uh, because having my near-death experience, I really was awakened to the fact that consciousness is not produced by the body and we have a timeless soul behind an infinite body and we are not synonymous with all these things that we temporarily attach ourselves as a part of our identity. And so I think it's ultimately finding ways to create different drafts from understanding some of the drafts that we might have had, you know, as messages are completed once lessons are embraced. And I think really this lifetime is about embracing those lessons, evolving from those lessons, as well as understanding some of our greater gifts that we could integrate within our lifetimes. And so I think so many people just sell themselves sell themselves some short on what they do versus who they truly are beyond, you know, the temporary roles that they see themselves as or just the limited value that society places on them. And I think it's really an empowering exercise, passive aggression, to really get in tune, you know, with yourself beyond time, beyond this body, you know, and to really embrace, you know, your your infinite awareness of yourself and your existence. What can a client gain from from this therapy? Like uh, <laughs> what 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 kind of testimonials have you seen essentially? Yeah, you know, at the very least, you'll feel incredibly relaxed, right? And so that's much needed in today's time. You know, it's a bit of a spa for the soul. But for some of my clients who get a little bit deeper, whether that's through individuals or groups, you know, what I've seen is, is, is people who have a lot more clarity of their soul's purpose. They are able to really know a little bit more about family dynamics, for physical ailments that they're uncertain of, or, or could even be black and blues that they don't know where they come from. So there's more of a cellular memory of some repeated physical, you know, conditions. There's, that, that physi- there's physical conditions that are linked to this as well. Yes, really? you know, and you th- even think of cell memory. You know, um, you know, you know. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, one of the pr- most prominent individuals in the field of past life regression reincarnation is Dr. Brian Weiss. You know, Yale trained psychiatrist, You're very, very respected guy. And I think, you know, several decades ago, he wrote the book, Many Lives, Many Masters. Anyway, his daughter, like myself, is a clinical social worker. When you have Brian as a dad, you probably separate church and state. You just see him as dad. You don't see him as a great Brian Weiss. You don't go to his cruise workshops and stuff like that. So his daughter, I think, tried one of his past life regressions and she was having vision impairments. And so when she attended his thing, she just recognized that she was, I guess, burnt in the face from a previous lifetime. And that condition subconsciously was repeating itself. And so after going to the regression, she didn't have any eye issues anymore. And so that was, that was healed. And so I don't view this as a supplementary practice for Western medicine, but I think it's a, it's, it's a complementary. It could be a complementary if you've tried everything and nothing could be ver, you know, verifiably explained by a doctor where they label you as psychosomaticism or stuff like that, but really something comes from somewhere. I do believe there's a genesis behind anything that we experience, mind, body, spirit. So it could get to the root of it. So the subconscious programming has our past lives stored in there as well. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, and that, you know, could really manifest itself, you know, within some of the repeated patterns. And once we're able to understand and distinguish, you know, that was, for practical terms, the past that happened. And this is now, we're able to be more present in our body instead of carrying over different lifetimes manifest itself, carry itself over into our body. And I think sometimes those, there's a duality to it. I think carrying things over is not just pathologized. That could be a great thing. You know, how do you explain Mozart playing at such a young age or, you know, Michael Jackson singing the way that he did, or just this, you know, God-given gifts that can't be taught in one, in one lifetime. And so I think it's important to carry over, you know, the positive stuff and the gifts while also have an understanding with some of the patterns that we carry over that might impact our worldview, or at the very least, our physical state, you know, from trauma that we might have had or, or different physical conditions that we replay over in this lifetime. Yeah, well, it's interesting because <laughs> some people are, you know, carrying something that happened in them when they were younger, like you did at three, but it could be something from three lives ago instead of, you know, three <laughs> right. years ago. Right. Right, Man, right, that, right. that's heavy. Right. And, you know, it's it's just amazing with passive, you know, regression, what it can do. I mean, the most profound, you know, case studies is, is usually in the University of Virginia where they have verifiable records of people. And what's amazing is when people reunite with the towns they lived in or even families or people that they know within that lifetime, you know, it's just amazing. Like one kid, I think, was a fighter fighter pilot he knew where he passed away. He knew the individual that he was with, and they were able to verify all of that, you know, within the records. And he was able to visit the exact spot of where he was shot down. I think in World War One or World War Two. He's called, I, I think, like the pilot child or something like that. But you know, and he, like many, you know, was just so enamored, so obsessed with this time period. And I think something comes from somewhere. We don't just you know, walk into this lifetime unexposed to that and just all of a sudden just become, you know, obsessed with it. So we're not blank canvases, you know, despite the body looking like that, we carry over, you know, endless carnations and endless wisdoms within, you know, the body. And so that's, that's important. So you're tapping into Akashic records, essentially. Is that? Yeah. You know, I think we have the thoughts that we're aware of within this time, place and moment, but then, the Akashic records are almost kind of like connecting to the internet. It's just connecting to this infinite consciousness beyond, you know, the linear mind. And so you're a lot more privy to certain information about yourself, about the world around you. I mean, really, that's what Edgar Casey did. I mean, he, I, I guess, was having some physical ailments and he did self-induced hypnosis. And from doing that, he was able to become the great Know, trans trans channeling, you know, intuitive that he was, where he's able to have all this awareness from the Akashic records on clients that he would face, as well as macro, you know, phases. And so I think really the mind works like a parachute. The more that it's practiced to be open, the more that it can receive, you know, from higher intelligence, higher awareness, higher consciousness at hand. But mm -hmm. that takes practice. And I think hypnosis is a great way to really open up that 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 mind and expand it to what you're meant to hear and what you need to hear as well. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned black and blue and that caught my attention because I have a black and blue mark on my, my leg and it's been there for, you know, I, I don't even know how long, at least 10 years mm. and uh, some varicose veins and whatnot. It's just, it's just, 
Yeah, there's no explanation. Right. I mean, we're cellular bodies and we, you know, we're, we're really cellular energy and we carry some of that energy. And so that's carried within our mind and that it just manifests itself within the body. You know, so the cellular memories within ourselves from past lives that at times carry themselves over. And I, and I view very much the body in many ways as just a reflection of the subconscious mind, you know, and, it, and the mind and body are very much related. And so when we're able to merge what we're not aware of to what we are aware of, you know, we're able to really live a life that's a lot more guided with a lot of stuff that isn't ours or stuff that came before this that we carry over that's unnecessarily bogging us down in this lifetime so that we could be on the wheel of our cd of our song not constantly replaying the same song over and over again i uh recently went through an event which I'm technically still i'm going through which most people would call dark night of the soul can pass life stuff be involved with with that this this deep it's like a spiritual depression. I, it's very hard to explain to somebody, but uh, mm. just a lot of fear and a lot of loneliness. It just I, out, of no, I th- out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it certainly can. I think within ourselves, we know how to recharge the body. We know what to do with the body, right? Because it's tangible. You know, if the body is tired, we sometimes rest. Obviously, we don't run, a, run away from life and, you know, know too much, but we know exactly what it needs, not what we want. Within the untangible parts of ourselves is a little bit harder. And at the end of the day, behind this body is it's a timeless soul. And that soul needs to be fed. That soul is higher vibratory. That soul's essence is love. And we're feeling deprived of love on the outside. You know, we feel it within. And I think really what's important is to learn different ways to recharge ourselves, to recharge the soul. Because there is a world weariness that could happen you know, through, through, through people, particularly the more connected you are spiritually. And so I think it's important to live a, a connected life so that you're able to live from the inside out versus the outside in. And so you learn different ways to recharge yourself mm-hmm. so that you could be proactive in managing your own energy because we are all, you know, to some degree, very much empathic. And a lot of people are feeling, you know, what's around them and they're really taking on that. And so I think what's important is to kind of be like a solar being and learning different ways to feed, nurture, acknowledge that inner part of ourselves, you know, that needs that needs to be fed. Much like we wouldn't starve our body, we shouldn't starve our soul from soulful experiences and soulful routes to charge, recharge ourselves too. Any suggestions on how to recharge the, the soul battery? Yeah, you know, it's hard when you're depressed because when you're depressed, you feel like you're just kind of sinking and the things that you used to enjoy give you no enjoyment and you just feel very flat and there's just this chronic fatigue that you have. Uh, But you find doing something simple or small, you know, starts things in a way. And obviously, you know, addressing this from the ground up, you know, with, with like a guy like myself, a local, you know, mental health practitioner, you know, I think is important or finding your own ways to address this from the ground up, you know, but, but, but I think also, you know, it's important. I I say too many people start to want to start fires without starting wanting to have a spark. You know, I think the fires start with certain sparks and we, just as we get into patterns that really derail us from small steps, we could have incremental gains. And so I think just doing something for yourself, you know, being gentle to yourself, you know, if it's something as, 
five minutes going for a walk outside and, you know, doing like a walking meditation or being present with your body. But I think it's more important to, to feel that sense of beingness while you are doing. I think plenty of people feel depressed because they feel very routine. They don't feel very present. And when you're able to be present, you're able to tap into this really deep, beautiful reservoir of who you are versus this feeling of empty existence. And I think there's a disconnect with really being able to feel yourself versus very being very connected to the doingness and just the routine of life that could sometimes happen. But I think it's very important to find different ways to spark your day or to find ways that you yourself elevate, that you yourself vibrate to a higher frequency and what gets you uh, going in any way. And I think what's important is to, to be not so much fixated on the result of it, but rather being present. I think if we're at Z, it's very hard to go through the steps of progression and elevation. And I think it's very important to stay present where we are and learning how to embrace and understanding the value of, like you said, storms, where I think storms aren't there to break us, but rather to make us. And really from the other side of it, we find that we're a little bit more sensitive, empathic and resilient uh, for ourselves to be able to understand other people around us and to hold space for them too. As this, if this, if we are all one, we are going through experiences to unify ourselves to each other, you know, to, to become more, you know, connected to each other through our own experiences and stories. What made you want to become a social worker? Yeah, you know, I think there was like two fields, obviously, that I wanted to get into, but I like social work in a sense of its um, versatility. You know, I think classic armchair psychology is great, but what are you going to do when your socioeconomic, you know, needs are not being met, you're feeling oppressed by the society around you, um, or if you're having difficulty navigating, you know, life from the ground up. And so what I like about social work is that it doesn't bypass those issues that, you know, most of us, you know, struggle with on a day in and day out basis. It acknowledges the person from the ground up and doesn't bypass you know, the person. And so I think the holistic approach that social work takes and the versatility of it, I think made the most sense to be able to have a full package degree of support to clients that I would engage and interact with. Uh, combined with, I also come from, you know, intergen intergenerational social workers. So it's in my family's, you know, kind of kin to do this. Uh, so I, I definitely inspired myself and was was influential behind it. But, but I do, I, I do like the versatility of it, because I always believe that we're multidimensional beings and we, we, do, we do need multidimensional resources. And I think that's the best way that we could help someone. And that's what I try to do in my services is not to be unidimensional, to help out a multidimensional being. And so I try to keep it very broad-based and eclectic with anything that I could do to support people and their you know, ground-up needs. And your book is available. So, you know, if... If you get a traditional client coming to you, you know, for therapy, they must know your story or at least know some of it. Right. Is there a reaction there in some way? No, you know, I, I think, you know, as a therapist, um, you know, self-disclosure has a certain, uh, uh, you know, positive gain from it if it's helpful for a client. And so normally the clients that are interested in my book, you know, they're interested in these other topics and the book really does help out people, you know, with grief and, and loss. 
And yes, there is personal stuff. Yes, there is a memoir, but you know, that is not a vendetta. That's meant to really allow people to have relatability to the afterlife. So at the very least, they could be more empowered and relate to the story and to not to put it on a pedestal. Part of my reasoning for doing it was seeing countless near-death experiencers talking, people listening to them, feeling inspired, but also having a spirituality without practicality. They weren't able to relate to it. And so my job is to not take a monopolization of the hereafter, but rather to do everything I can to empower people to have it, what I call tickle the soul of, of amnesia going away, you know, and just kind of remembering that this is a part of themselves too, that they might have forgotten and that it's never too late, you know, to have an alternative change of reality in your life. And I think it could happen with an open mind and open heart and that openness, that open possibility is life force in itself. I think life tends to feel quite uh, deflating when it's close-endedness and we just feel, you know, that this is reality, this is it. And I think really that's very antithetical to who we are, which is eternal beings with eternal possibilities of awareness. And I think each and every day is a different way to look at the nature of reality in itself. So that's what I want to provide within this book. Yeah, you mentioned hypnosis earlier. You do hypnosis. What what's the advantage of that? Can someone really dig in there and uh, maybe you know quit smoking cigarettes or change mm-hmm. their diet? Absolutely. I mean, you know, hypnosis really does work with a deeper mind. It's kind of like you've tried every stop on the train and, and that hasn't worked. And so that's usually when hypnosis, you know does tend to help, but really it's a lot of, a lot of it is synthesizing and synergizing the subconscious mind with the conscious mind. So you have the desire to, let's say, stop smoking, but there's just this part of you that, that is hooked on it. Right. And, you know, obviously bioneurochemically it is, but within any change, there has to be, um, we have to be in parallel. We can't be one foot in one foot out. And so I think it's really synergizing the things that we're aware of and a lot of ideas, concepts, you know, patterns that we're caught up in, you know, that we've got in routine. And so I think really for any change, you have to want it, but you also have to feel a certain degree of disgust, disgust rather with some of your patterns. And so a lot of that is felt on a deeper level so that we're able to really understand some of our patterns and have different feelings and labels to those patterns that are more, you know, kind of negatively based versus positive associations with our patterns. So there's a lot of reframing on a, on a deeper level that happens within it. Do you feel that someone can also change their subconscious uh, with, with a practice such as affirmations? Absolutely. I mean, hypnosis works with something called NLP, neuro linguistic programming. And so that's a form of hypnotherapy. And so, right. So NLP work is that, that does a lot of work with EFT, you know, which is the, you know, tapping, So I think a lot of it is learning how to really change the way that you speak to yourself, change your viewpoints, and also to visit some of the trapped energy in your body that you might have, you know, had, you know, negative statements to. And so I think it's really learning at the, at the crux of it, how to be more empowered and how to be more selective with your thoughts as do as indeed thoughts become things and they become manifestations of your life. The key is, is to define yourself with, with positive stories. And I think God made all of us because he, he or she likes stories and we are all different expressions of the divine. We're all different stories. And I think it's learning how to take the pen back and how to define our own different stories and to understand 
our biggest ammo with this life is our own perceptions, our own thoughts, you know, and those create different pathways of ease or more barriers within our aspirations. So you feel like God want, you know, wants us to learn the subconscious and be able to do law of attraction and things of that nature? I don't know if there's any wants. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in wants. It's more, I, I see this as our, as, as ourselves, ourselves expressing it. And I think there's a beauty in why we came here in a sense that we came here to just almost be a little bit blind, right? Cause on their side, it's all clear to you. And so we lose a little bit of that, but coming back to truth from losing it and the concept of losing and coming back to you, to remind ourselves that we can never be lost and wandering here on this earth, as I say, not all who wander are lost. And so I think there's, there's a beautiful feeling of, of having a limited state of awareness, having something happen to you and just remembering that. And, and, you know, and that is what I like to call faith, right? You know, mm. belief is we have an idea of reality that gets, you know, construed and all of a sudden, you know, we're on our behinds where faith is regardless of what happens. There's a part of us that we connect to, that knows regardless of what happens, we entrust. And I think really it's, it's about having faith within ourselves and remembering who we truly are, you know, versus identifying ourselves with the pain or suffering that could occur within this, you know, lifetime. I think a lot of people identify themselves with suffering or negative associations versus, you know, being, having an empowered realization uh, of their eternal, you know, truth within themselves and, you know, eternal potential. You mentioned trapped energy. How do we how do we get rid of that trapped energy? If we have something going on in a chakra, well, I say if we could create it, we could also change it too. You know, we forget. I think so much of creation is focused on the negative, where we create negative circumstances. But I think in a way, you know, we could also alter it to a state of flow readiness. I think at the core of us is love right, is, is eternal peace. And so when we have negative emotions that get into that water, that affects our own flow. And so I think really what's important is to take inventory of what I might be holding onto that's causing a blockage within a part of myself or my body. And you can't have a feeling without a thought. You know, thoughts really sponsor that particular sensation. And so I think it's very important to go into feelings so that that could promote a state of healing. Uh, for instance, if you have a cut, it doesn't just heal on its own. You have to be able to put, you know, bacteria on it and a bandaid on it and stuff like that. So I know within my clients, let's just say, you know, I, I work as a healer, as also a Reiki practitioner. And so we're able to really go to the deep part, the root part of what we're holding on to. And from that point, we're able to have catharsis and we're able to really pivot, recenter ourselves. And so it's not that we're becoming anything that we're not, but rather we're getting ourselves back to who we truly are, which is this, this eternal state of stasis. And practicing Reiki as a practitioner, you know, that really is what Reiki is all about. Rei is universal and Ki is energy. And really it's about getting ourselves back into stasis, back into our own energy flow, not trying to muscle our way to that, but rather the process of reduction of things that are, are bogging us down so that we could be in a state of flow on an inner basis so that we could be in the state of flow of what happens outside of us. Because in the outside of us, there is no flow. If we have this inner flow, we're able to really kind of be like water, regardless of what happens. We have this eternal foundation of flow within ourselves that we could go through life a little bit more with grace and ease. 
Yeah, you're you're a practitioner of a lot of different modalities. So Reiki can be a way to really get that trapped energy moving, right? Yeah, I mean Reiki. I mean to me, the, the crux of it is really going deep, but also the goal is to create that movement because once we are in that place of flow, as we know, that place of flow is is eternal grace, you know, beauty, and we felt flow within our lifetimes. There's this this timelessness. There's this beautiful, you know, experience that we can't put into words. And so I think this energy as it is and who we are to our core is perfect just as it is. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We forget that. And so there's many paths up to the mountain, whether that's Reiki, meditation, hypnosis. But at the end of the day, it's really about getting to higher awareness of that flow and learning to be that flow, you know, within ourselves and our interactions. So How often do you think someone should get Reiki? You know, it depends. I see clients on, you know, like twice a week basis. Um, what I like about Reiki is that, you know, there, there's a certain point where, yes, you come to my table, we have that quick spike. But the more important element is learning how to obviously do it on yourself. And so there's many levels of Reiki when you go through your training. But the first primal basis of Reiki is learning to do it on your own and to have self-induced healing on yourself. Because as we know, throughout the day, you can't live in a Reiki practitioner's office. You can't have it all the time. And so it's learning to be in tune with it on yourself without needing someone, but rather having that person as a potential asset to your Reiki journey and to your healing journey. So we all have the ability to move energy out of our hands and do it ourselves. Absolutely. We all are universal life force. So if we forget that. I think what's important is to really amplify that and so that we feel you know recharged versus deflated because at times when we're deflated we just feel totally separate from our energy and just kind of like going into a car and having a part of our car that's broken we're trying to work it and it's just not running properly and it's just sputtering and we feel just so exhausted and so i think really tuning up that engine tuning up you know our, our inner part of ourselves allows us to really flow through life a lot easier without using all these extra muscles that shouldn't be used in those places. You know, it should be easy when we connect to this stuff. When we're disconnected, yeah, it gets more difficult because there's more baggage that we have to deal with. So if somebody had a hurt leg or they felt tension in, say, their root chakra and, and they knew Reiki, they could perform it on themselves to get better circulation. Absolutely. I mean, I you know, this past week I had clients with, with a lot of you know, particularly neck problems, I think the world today could be feel like a pain in the neck, right? And so mm. almost the body speaks. So you have all these euphemisms that really do speak to the subconscious, you know, manifestations on the body. But I was able to really work with these clients and they did feel a difference. And I know, you know, how pain is really synonymous with that mind-body dichotomy where you're in a good frame of mind. It's not that the injury changes, it's that you are a lot more in a sense, control of your flow, and there's less fixation on that particular part of you for being expanded and connected to you to a part that's flowing through you. And so the exact you know, issue is still the same, but you're a lot more expanded. And so your focus isn't just on that one particular point, you know, the pain receptors within your brain in that particular point, but rather you're connected to this flowing part of you. And so that part is able to really flow itself to that particular point of stagnation, you know, so that you could improve 
our brain can produce pain in our body, can it? Yes, it can. I mean, the brain is a very powerful weapon within this lifetime. And certainly having periods of suffocation, the last part that I was aware of was my own brain. And my brain literally powered down and, and snapped in half. And once my brain snapped in half was really when the other realms of the other side opened themselves up to me. And the doorways, you know, of the higher realm, you know, was open. I was, it's always open, but I was aware to it. And I understood really the brain as, as a great ally to the two worlds. And what's really important is to allow life to not flow from us, but rather flow through us. And so I think when the brain is open, we're really able to allow ourselves to be more open to creativity, to wisdom, to intuition. You know, all those things really are flowing through our own neural pathways within the brain. And so once I, I really recognize the brain as really just this in-between mediator between the two realms. And so exercises like meditation, physical exercise, getting in tune with some of those deeper brain waves, getting proper sleep, proper nutrition, we could have a healthy brain, happy brain, so that we could really be a lot more connected to, you know, higher consciousness and to who we truly are. You know, it's kind of like you're trying to sing a song, but if your vocal cords are backed up, you can't really have as much clarity in your song. Mm. And so I think the mind and body, you know, it needs to be working with us and not against us. You know, kind of like a projector, we are all just projectors of light, but when we have all the stuff, you know, that's what we see ourselves as. And so we move all this stuff, we remind ourselves of this eternal, beautiful light that we truly are. And I think really this process is a process of removal, you know, not, you know, additional stuff or, you know, stuff like that. So has fear of death been eliminated from your consciousness? I would say so. I mean, I'm still traumatized by suffocation. I can't, you know, every yeah. near-death experiencer is the same suffocating. So I don't fear death. I fear, process. I guess, the dying, the process of it. I don't fear what's on the other side of it at all. I, in fact, embrace it, look forward to it. It's something that we're forever connected to. You know, I think the other side is, is within ourselves. We can never be separated from it, but you have a full-blown awakening to it, obviously, in moments, different moments of your life. But when the body leaves, you know, there's, 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 there's a higher awareness, you know, and there's a change of mm -hmm. awareness. But, but I, you know, I like what Anita Morjani said, where she said, yes, I had all these euphoric experiences, but that doesn't take away the pain that I actually still feel within my body or the grief that I'll feel. And so, yes, that is there. And that's important to utilize, but also it's important to acknowledge that, we do feel these things and that is a part of the human experience and it is okay yeah. to feel sad, to feel grief, to feel moments of depression. You know, it's all a part of our, you know, experience. And, you know, I think sometimes we have a viewpoint of a one-way trajectory towards evolution, you know, but in many ways steps back lead to steps forward and we go through things, you know, not to be defined by them, but to go through them and to come through with you know, that, that period a little bit stronger, a little bit more evolved and more aware. So I think every experience happens for a reason. And I try not to, you know, hide myself from the bad or the pain, but rather to embrace it. Because I think a lot of this is learning how to unconditionally love ourselves and the planet, you know, just that dialect where it's not transactional love, but rather embracing, you know, the stuff that gives us comfort or, or discomfort and learning how to, how to manage those two. Yeah, and it's interesting how you're you're saying that you know you're not scared of the other side, but 
the not breathing, the choking, that's uh, that would be considered like a PTSD kind of, right? Like yeah, it's just the me- it's the memory holding on to a feeling. I I you know I fear I fear like the momentary experience, but I see behind it, you know, that it's just a blip in time, that it's nothingness. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I don't know. You get you know you're gonna be punched in the face, but you know from being punched in the face, you'll life will continue on, you'll feel amazing. So does it you know take away the fact that being punched in the face is a discomfort. So yeah, I mean there is a discomfort of that. You know, I'm hopeful when I do die, you know, I can't say die that to me the world doesn't that word does not exist, but when I leave my body, it will be a little bit more, you know, of an easier transition and more seamless. But I think just just how it happened to me where I was just so awake playing in a playground, it was just this traumatic change that just happened. It wasn't kind of like I went peacefully within my sleep. But the majority of people, when they do die, it's due to, you know, the, the breathing becomes belabored, you know, it, you know, and more difficult, you know, but I think it is a little bit more easier if it happens in your sleep versus fully awake in a playground like what mm-hmm. I did. Or if yeah. you're in a hospital and they, you they're know. easing your, you yeah. know, but it's your some, discomfort. But, you know, the, 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 exp- yeah, the, the process of dying, but death itself is something that I embrace and look forward to. But I, I don't put my life on hold to begin until one that happens. I think the afterlife is right here. And I try to integrate the wisdom of that. And so that there's not a big change when I cross over. And so the beauty of the afterlife is always there. But my energy is able to vibrate to that energy. And so there's no real difference of the kingdom of the other side and myself, we're, we're forever connected. And I mm. integrate those principles in the walking state of being human. Before I ask my last question, where can somebody come find you and where can they get your book? But if you are interested, you know, you can look at my website at jacoblcooper.com. Um, in my book, you just click the book link, Life After Breath. It's on the top toolbar and it's available on Amazon and Kindle on paperback. Uh, it's available on Amazon Kindle and paperback, uh, but you know it's been endorsed by New York Times best-selling authors. It's with the publisher, um, you know, and, and it it has the majority of it five-star reviews. It's been well received. Obviously, with any creative work, there are detractors, and we embrace that. It, you know that criticism, you know, helps to create an objective decision for for purchases. But you know, I just know that I planted the seeds of the best that I could, and what people do with that is out of my hands. And it's my hope, obviously, that it will enrich your life, inspire you, you know, to remember who you truly are. So how do we create peace and euphoria in the physical world? I don't think it's about creation. Um, I think it's about generating who you truly are. I think if we're a leaf in water, then we're going to feel a lot of turbulence with the world outside of us. I think if we're very connected to who we truly are and that place within will remember that as who we truly are. And so when a moment takes us, we don't define ourselves by that moment, but rather remind ourselves that we are pivoted and offset of our natural base. And so I think the more that we're able to remind ourselves of who we truly are, what we're connected to, the more that we're able to pivot. Falling down, pivoting is all a part of the human experience. We're not here to just be a flatline, you know, standpoint. And so from those experiences, we could be a lot more connected in so many ways. But I think it's not about creating peace, but rather embodying that is what we are and remembering and connecting to that peace. I think so many people have a very 
kind of shallow remembrance of themselves and shallow connectivity to themselves and to the nature of reality. And so I think, you know, setbacks in a way could allow us to reframe the foundation of ourselves and they could be step forwards if we allow it. Mm. It's very hard to find someone who, you know, is at the top of society of influence who hasn't had, like you were talking about earlier, that dark night of the soul. Mm. And those periods really, you know, could really be transformative and be the phoenix out of the ashes, but they're there for us for reasons. And reminding ourselves of the eternity within, reminding ourselves that these moments are are finite, that at the end of the day, euphoria and love and ourselves goes on regardless of the circumstances could help out within you know moments of needed resilience as well as reminding ourselves of how much more loved that we are that we could ever imagine and being able to be open to that conceptualization that there are beings of light beings of love who love us indescribably more than we could ever imagine so i think it's taken the illusion of loneliness and allowing ourselves to live a guided life that is, you know, felt with forces beyond just our own negativity, you know, and fears, and entrusting intelligence far greater than our own that created us than our own limited awareness. God loves us, doesn't it? God is love, yeah. And we are love at our core, that is who we are. That's what we came here to do, to remember that part of our love and to have that ripple effect. And I know you're doing it on a daily basis and you know, I think your vulnerability helps because um, I think teachers that are relatable are able to be seen and heard, you know, and felt, and that leads to practical change. And that's something that I took from my near-death experience. And no person is better or worse than others. We all come from, you know, the same place. We all go to the same place. We're here to remember that we are one, not that we are here to separate ourselves. And we're here to be our brothers and sisters keeper playing here on this playground of life, much like I did in my near-death experience when I had mine in my playground, you know, mm. several years ago. So, Jake, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. An honor. Keep up the great work, and thank you so much for your time and your poignant, intuitive questions. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.